Hello friends, this is James Berry, and today we'll be mapping umami on the 15-minute matrix. Welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix Special Nutrition Therapy Series, where we're going to dive into the approaches, practices, dietary theories, and healing foods that have been used in the most successful practices across the globe and throughout history. I'm Andrea Nakayama, functional medicine nutritionist and your host. The 15-Minute Matrix is the podcast that brings you bite-sized insights and lessons which highlight the most important tool in functional medicine and functional nutrition, and that's the functional matrix. The functional nutrition matrix reminds us of three very important factors in our clinical care. Everything is connected, we are all unique, and all things matter. Be sure to head over to this episode's show notes at 15minutematrix.com if you'd like to see today's topic mapped on a downloadable matrix to remind you of these critical aspects of care. Today on the 15 Minute Matrix, I'll be speaking with James Berry. James Berry's 16 plus years in the culinary field started as a private chef. He had the good fortune of cooking for celebrities such as Tom Cruise, George Clooney, Barbara Streisand, and John Cusack. James started Wholesome To Go, a healthy, high-quality food delivery company that served under his leadership in the Los Angeles area for eight years. Most recently, James launched his first functional food product, Pluck, an organ-based, all-purpose seasoning. It's the first of its kind and an amazingly easy and delicious way for people to get organ meats into their diet. James also co-authored the recipes in Margaret Floyd's book, Eat Naked, and co-authored the follow-up cookbook, The Naked Foods Cookbook. He most recently co-authored the recipes for Dr. Alejandro Junger's book, Clean 7. Hey, James, welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. Thanks for having me, Andrew. It's a pleasure. From right around the corner, basically. <laughs> yeah, we're <laughs> Northwesters, right? Yay. Not even just Northwest, but like Southeast Portland. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> we are right here talking about umami. So yeah. I remember the first time I learned about umami was in my anatomy and physiology class, and I did not know that there was a fifth taste. There are five basic tastes, right? Yep. So there's basically the sour, the sweet, the salty, and the bitter. And then umami was one that was discovered actually in like 1908, I mean, by a Japanese scientist. So it's been around a long time, but we didn't really identify it, I think, in popular culture until really like early 2000s. I mean, that's when you start seeing things popping up, you know, like umami burger and all these kind of umami bomb kind of restaurants where it was more conscious about the umami taste. Mm -hmm. So what is that taste? What can we relate it to? I mean, basically it's meaty or savory. That's really what it is. But in Japanese, it means pleasant, savory taste. But I think we, you know, Westerners would equate it to meat, you know, or to soups or broths. I think that's what we associate it with. But you know, what's really interesting is here in the US, we have been experiencing umami forever in one particular product. Now, umami is naturally in many foods like mushrooms, tomatoes, fish, cheese, you know, meats. 
But there's one product that America has been eating for a freaking long time, and that's ketchup. Mm, and that has umami. It has umami. And I don't think anyone's ever identified that it has umami. So we didn't know it. But yet it makes sense when you think about how popular ketchup is as a condiment. Because umami is that unique flavor that makes everything else taste better. It's completely unique. So those fanatics that love ketchup, that's probably why. That's so interesting because there's a connection between glutamate, right? And yep. umami. And we have an episode on glutamate, both naturally occurring and chemical, but tomatoes contain glutamate. So is it that in combination with the other flavors? Yes. Yeah. So the most kind of well-known source of umami is MSG. That's the monosodium glutamate. And that is like the purest form of umami because, you know, when you're getting umami in foods, you're getting other flavors as well. But MSG is basically, it is strictly umami. So when you see MSG or any derivative of that in a product, it's because they're trying to tap that umami flavor. And what happens is kind of tied to that umami flavor is it also taps that part of our brain that is addictive, that wants more of whatever it is we're eating. So you'll see MSG show up in so many processed foods. And you know what's interesting is I've done a lot of research on this. So the FDA does not show any adverse effects to MSG. And in Japan, they actually used to take MSG like tablets. I mean, way back in the day, this was a health regime in Japan. So it's been around a long time. And there's really no known studies that show that People have issues with it, yet anyone in the health field will say, oh, yes, yes, it causes headaches or it causes this issue or that issue. But yet, why are there no studies really showing this? Yeah, I think that's what the people who do speak about the health impacts of MSG talk about, that it's not studied because it may be certain pathways in the body about how that person processes MSG or glutamate versus a problem with the substance itself, which I think is so interesting. And then it doesn't mean if we can't handle MSG that we can't handle the flavor umami because there's actually, like you said, there's something that it does that was thought about as health promoting, whether that's like the sensation in the mouth or on the tongue I would assume, James, even salivation and how that kind of helps us produce more enzymes for digestion. Do I have that right? Absolutely. So umami distinct characteristics, some of them are that it kind of creates this coating along your tongue. So basically it speaks across the tongue. So we have taste receptors on very specific parts of our tongue and mouth, but umami tends to spread across the entire tongue. So it almost has like a coating sensation. And then, as you said, it has a salivation or a mouth-watering sensation. It has a complexity, so it actually makes foods taste more complex than maybe even they are. And then the taste lasts longer than the other tastes, which is really fascinating. And all these characteristics make sense of why it's being added into so many processed foods. It completely makes sense when you think about the characteristics. Right, so then it gets those enzymes going. I think it also, like might help with some of the hunger or satiety hormones because it's kind of lingering there for so long? Well, processed food makers, I think they do it 
to our hindrance so that it's inspiring you to eat more. Right. Right. So they're putting it in their Doritos or in their chips, things like that, to get us to eat beyond what our body wants to eat. So, of course, any practitioner knows this. We're being fooled. Our bodies are being fooled by most processed foods. I mean, I would almost say like, you know, 99.9% of them, right? And because also it's tied to taste, right? So in nature, taste usually represented nutrients. If something had flavor, if it tasted good, it meant it had nutrients. And now think about flavor and food. I mean, it's just off the charts. You get blown out flavor in these processed foods and they have no nutrients. That is one of the biggest issues that we're facing. You know, I know there's other pandemics being focused on, but the biggest one is that we are nutrient deficient. We are calorie rich, but nutrient deficient. We have an enormous issue with this and it's across the globe. So clearly we're getting the calories. We're an obese nation, but yet we're not nutrient sufficient. We are deficient. So that's a huge issue. Yeah, there's so much confusion around food these days and even around diet and terms like good or bad or food is medicine. It's a pretty complex conversation around food these days that is about physiology, psychology, so many things. When we think about umami so we can kind of get it in our imagined state, you said tomatoes, you mentioned mushrooms. I think the first studies were on seaweed. Do I have that right? Yep, that's correct. Seaweed. What about seafoods? Sardines? Yep, it's in yep, sardines. It's in fish in general, but particularly fermented. Anything fermented is going to be more prevalent with umami. Soy sauce, of course, that's one of the main ways people get umami in their meals. Green tea is another. Mm. So the glutamate is naturally occurring in, in the human body as well. So as you pointed out, the main source of umami is the glutamate, right? And we don't have to be afraid of glutamate. Right. You know, it's the monosodium glutamate that we need to question. But glutamate in general is something we do not need to be afraid of. It shows up in organ meats, which is what I'm all about. That's what I want to talk about. Right? I mean, it, it shows up in organ meats. It shows up in bone broths, meat broths. It shows up in beef. If you're eating beef or chicken, fish, as we mentioned, it's in those. So we don't have to be afraid of glutamate, particularly when it's coming from a natural source. Yeah, I do want to talk about the umami in the meat and particularly in the organ meats and what you've been able to do with organ meats. We will link back to Dr. Terry Wall's episode on offal. It's actually number two of the podcast way back when. But umami for you in relation to bringing out flavor, let's talk about organ meats and their relationship to umami. Yeah. So I always think about salt, salt and kids, because kids, I believe, have a really pure, clean palate. They're not like as heady about it as I think as adults get. We kind of create a lot of emotional and psychological and sometimes chemical connections to what we're willing to put into our body. But at their simplest form, your youngest age, kids, they'll taste something and they'll immediately react to it. And that informs their palate. The palate is something that we always have to remember. This is a living, breathing thing. It's ever evolving. You should never treat the palate like, oh, my kid or I don't like this and I never will like this. It's like, no, 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 that's not true. I mean, any parent will tell you 
You can try feeding your kids spinach one day, they won't like it, and then seven days later they will. You just don't know and you just constantly have to explore putting these different foods into your mouth. You can also build your palate, which is what I love doing with organ meats because I think organ meats are an acquired taste. They have that kind of metallic taste, sometimes even urine taste if you're doing kidney, but they just have a taste that's foreign. And I think sometimes we equate foreign taste to, I don't like this, or I don't want this. I think that's one thing that we have to overcome. But so I was talking about salt and kids. So one of the things I love about watching a kid with salt is that they'll dip their finger in the salt, particularly sea salt, right? And they'll start to eat it and their body will either respond in a very like kind of hunger way, or it will be like, no, I'm good. And you'll see a kid dip their finger in that salt. And when their body has had enough, it stops. They just, it's clear, like even their palate, the way that the salt tastes on the tongue changes, right? Have you ever noticed that? It just, yeah. suddenly your body tells you, I'm done. I got enough, I'm good. Well, so what's so interesting, so I created this product, which you know, is the organ-based seasoning. So basically I'm taking freeze-dried powdered organ meats, which are umami, they naturally have glutamate, and I'm using five organs in this mix, the liver, kidney, heart, spleen, pancreas. And then I'm combining it with these spices and herbs to offset that taste that people associate with organ meat, right? But what's so fascinating is when a kid, I've seen so many kids dip their finger in it and start eating it and they don't want to stop. And so that tells me two things. It tells me one, it's that umami, right? They're yep. getting that umami bomb and they're just like, oh, I can't stop. It's hitting that part in their brain that's a little addictive and wanting it. But also it's telling me that their bodies are craving this product, this organ meat. Yeah, I love that. You're making me think of when my son was little and I know you still have fairly littles. Yeah. They're bigger than when I saw them. <laughs> <laughs> so my son's 21, but he grew up not eating refined sugar. We just didn't, as a family, eat refined sugar. But when he started to get a little older and get to birthday parties, he might have eaten something that had a healthier, quote unquote, healthier sugar, a less processed sugar in it. But when he did and he would come home, he would always ask for seaweed. It's like he needed to balance out the sweet in his body. And he doesn't have a big sweet tooth still to this day, but he needed to balance it with something. And I'm remembering that and thinking of that kind of craving of the umami to offset the sweet. That just shows that it truly advanced palate, right? I mean, your son, that, that's incredible. He did that. But have you ever heard of umabashi paste? Yeah. My late husband was half Japanese. So I actually teach about giving my father-in-law who had a hard time digesting umabashi because it was familiar to him. But yeah, that's super umami, right? Yes. And that's usually recommended for exactly how your son used it, which is to offset an imbalance. Right. They, they use umabashi as a health tool, you know, whether it's the way you did with your husband's father or with your son. I mean, yeah. yeah. Or I, I mean, I, I know people that when they're starting to come down with the cold, that they eat some. Mm, and it also is going to be super stimulating. That flavor is going to be stimulating again for those enzymes that help us to digest the meat. So it's kind of like it was built into the meat, the flavor of the umami, get that palate and those secretions going in order to pump up the hydrochloric acid to break down the protein molecule. That's why I truly love, I mean, I've been a chef 
for over 16 years, right? So I've seen so many things, but the one trend that I believe just never goes away and it shouldn't is eating whole foods, eating real foods, right? And yeah. because when you do eat that whole orange versus taking a vitamin C tablet or something, when you eat that whole orange, it is incredibly complex. It's something that they cannot create in a laboratory. When they create vitamin C tablets, they're isolating parts of the orange. It's not the entire orange. They can't recreate it. They can't do it. And you think about that with other foods. It's like you cannot get the complexity, even though there are scientists that will say, oh, the flavor scientists, I, I can't even tell you when I was creating my product, Pluck, when I was creating it, I actually spoke with a flavor scientist who said, hey, you don't need to use organ meats. I can put the umami in the spice for you and you don't even have to use organ meats. And I was like, what? Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, well, what is the point like, of that? No, thank you. <laughs> yeah. I was like, the, the whole point is I'm trying to get the nutrition from the whole food, the whole organs. Like that's right. like, I don't want an isolated, hydrolyzed, laboratory made product. I want to use the real whole food because that is the complexity. That is the thing that I believe we are missing from our diets and that is informing our palates of what we need or don't need. Yeah, so important. And we will link to where folks can find out more about Pluck. It's so good. I really highly recommend getting your hands on some. Before I let you go, James, can you talk about how umami and these flavors can help us to encourage our clients and patients to move towards a more whole food diet or making dietary changes? Absolutely. So, well, you mentioned, I mean, your son's experience is so profound because I think that's something we can all learn from is that rebalancing. I think in general, when working with clients, we want to think about rebalancing because clearly if something's off, you're off balance. You know, the scale is too far one way. So whether it's like, you know, removing sugar from the diet or kind of trying to balance out the elements of the food, there's so many different ways of looking at food. There's elemental food design. So there's people that look at food from a, is it air, water, fire, or earth? There's alkaline and acidic. There's, you know, obviously, is it meat-based or plant-based? You know, there's so many different ways to look at food. And I think that's one thing that we can bring as practitioners, we can bring to the table is that rebalancing is not just about a chemical thing. It's not just about a psychological thing, but it's about what is going to work for this client how are they going to receive this information and what's going to work for them to achieve the health that you're trying to prescribe? And so I'm always looking at how can I provide that health without a new habit? Because it's the new habits that really defeat the mission of the practitioner with their client. I think COVID is a perfect example of this. Like, so what happened when COVID hit? Well, all these addictive foods increased. Right. You know, what I mean, alcohol consumption went up, drug consumption went up, baking, you know, eating pastries that all went up, sugar went up. So that tells me we all defaulted to what's comfortable. And I know the practitioners listening are like, yeah, my clients don't want to leave their comfort zone. And so my advice is, is to really focus on health changes that are not requiring a new habit initially. And that is the power of pluck really, because it's a seasoning, right? So you're not getting people to change a new habit. They already season their food. We're just saying season it differently. Season it with this organ meat seasoning because now you're getting the flavor and the nutrition that they previously were not. And those little micro dosing, that little, those little movements do add up. You know, we can't discredit micro dosing. I mean, look at glyphosate, right? They sold glyphosate, told us 
Well, glyphosate is okay for the human body because it's only micro amounts. Well, look at it now. It's in everything. It's in the environment. It's in our breast milk. It's in our body. It's, we can't get rid of it. It's everywhere. Microdosing matters. So it's these little movements that don't require new habits. I believe that those are what's going to really make the difference for the practitioner and the client relationship. Yeah. Well, thank you for your contribution to the microdosing nutrients because <laughs> we can really get in the kitchen and play there. And again, like you said, it's not a big deal. It's not a huge change. Thank you so much, James, for the work you're doing in this cross section between being a chef, but really thinking through the lens of nutrients and nutrition. Thank you for having me. And thank you for all that you do as well. The 15-Minute Matrix is brought to you by me, Andrea Nakayama, and the Functional Nutrition Alliance. Check out the latest in functional nutrition at functionalnutritionlab.com forward slash blog. The 15-Minute Matrix is produced, mixed, and edited by Rowan Bradley with production support from Natalie Merrill and the team at the Functional Nutrition Alliance. You can find episodes on all kinds of topics with more incredible guests at our podcast website, 15minutematrix.com. And if you'd like to be notified by email each week about our podcast releases, head on over to 15minutematrix.com forward slash notify. Also, please feel free to get in touch with us. We would love to hear your thoughts, your feedback, and who you'd like to hear next on the podcast. You can email us at ask at 15minutematrix.com. 